You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome to tfm's books and comic show for star trek and i am just one of the hosts here matthew rushing and with me this week i'm so excited to be with this guy uh, as we're going to be talking about a really fun comic the one the only the masterful christopher jones <laughs> well thank you matthew i'm one of the other hosts here on Literary Treks, I guess. And I hope you don't mind, but I brought a bunch of critters with me today for this discussion. I promise they won't cause any problems. Uh, you said that last time, Chris, and it ate half the ship. Well, that's because we didn't have Tassel's help last time. Oh, okay. Okay, so good. As long as you've brought her and Core with you, I think we'll be okay. So, um, well, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, this week, uh, we talked, uh, in our last episode, uh, Bruce and I about all the news. There was so much news to talk about. So that means this week we don't really have, there hasn't been anything really announced. And so we're going to be able to dive right into the show. And I'm really excited because, um, I've been wanting to cover this comic for quite a while, Chris, uh, ever since I saw them re-release it, IDW. And man, I'm excited to talk about Debt of Honor and, as I think, you know, for for me and I know for you, when we're reading the comics, you know, art is such a key part of these stories. And if the art doesn't work, it, it really hurts the story in many ways. And so I wanted to start off with that and what you thought of the artwork here, because um, we have uh, Adam T. Hughes and Carl C. Story as the artists uh, and Tom C. McCraw as the colorist. Uh what did you think of their work here in Dead of Honor? Well, I quite enjoyed it. You know, it's a style that's a bit different than what we've grown accustomed to with the more recent IDW mm-hmm. comics. For me, it's a bit nostalgic because it's that style that I kind of grew up reading over the years a bit more. So I really liked it. And, you know, for the most part, most of the time in here, you get likenesses such that the characters feel real to you. Occasionally, there's, you know, one where it's a little bit off, but for the most part, it works really well. And in this comic in particular, because they have so many moments of flashbacks where they take us to events that we either saw on screen or to events that we didn't see, but were referenced, such as the sequences that we get aboard the Farragut, they have an opportunity to draw all the different uniforms that we saw yeah, from the original yep. series all the way through the motion picture and then the later TOS films. And that's really fun to see the artists get to play around with those a bit. Yeah, I, uh, I, I like that you pointed that out about how this comic gives the artists the ability to explore every area of the original series, you know, um, from start 
uh, even before the start, really. I mean, uh, all the way to, you know, what we see um, right there between, you know, movies four and five, which is just so cool. Um, and I, I have to say, you know, I it it is in some ways quite nostalgic, the art, um, because I was just uh, for Valentine's Day. My wife got me the first collection of, of Man of Steel, which is the uh, John Burns run. Uh, there for Superman from the set, the late 80s. And the art is very similar to this. But there was something just really special, I thought. I mean, the the pages here are so good. Um, and the likenesses, you know, it does a perfect job of blending art with making sure that the character looks like they do in the show. Mm-hmm. And... Just some of the splash pages that we get. I mean, just as a just as a um, a reference, uh, it's page three, and it's that beautiful page of the Enterprise breaking up uh, as Kirk right. is kind of having this nightmare of you know being back on the Genesis planet. It's incredible. Like it really is. The amount of work that probably went into this page is astounding. So to me, I mean, the art alone in this comic. I think makes it worth reading. I mean, even if I didn't like the story, which spoiler alert, I do, I think that the art for this comic is outstanding. And it's the kind of art to which, man, I would love to have uh, a, a major splash page from this, you know, on the wall. That that's mm-hmm. the that's the kind of comic book art that I love, um, you know. And so I I couldn't be more complimentary for what we get in this comic art-wise. Yeah, definitely. I agree. So the story itself, Chris, takes place right after Star Trek IV, before we get to Star Trek V. And so the framing device here for the story is the fact that Kirk is on the ocean. Uh, he's with Jillian Taylor and uh, they're they're on a cruise together. You know, he doesn't have a ship right now. Um, the Enterprise A isn't ready. And they're basically on kind of an extended vacation uh, that's allowing them to keep track of, of uh, Gracie uh, and George. And so I, I really appreciated this because it allows us to get introduced to place and the mindset that Kirk is in with everything that has happened over the last, you know, what, year of his life. And he is still processing not only the loss of his son, but honestly, he's still processing the loss of the Enterprise, which has meant so much to him. And I thought that this was such a great framing device for which they're going to use to kind of let us do flashbacks and then kind of have the story move forward in the present time as well. Yeah, and I feel like this story overall is maybe more about him coming to terms with the loss of the Enterprise rather than the loss of his son. Sure. Oh, yeah. Or any of the other crew with whom he served over the years. Early on, he's on the boat with Jillian, and he says that the Enterprise was just a ship, and Jillian says, well, the Enterprise was your ship, Captain. She Mm -hmm. served you well and faithfully, and you killed her. And, of course, you know, that moment in Star Trek Three when he does decide to destroy the Enterprise, it's one of my favorite moments in all of Star Trek. I think it's one of the most moving scenes in Star Trek emotionally. 
And the reason is because you know that for Kirk, the Enterprise is his first love and he would not destroy her unless it was the absolute only move he had left. Mm -hmm. And that scene when they're down on the planet looking up and he asks Bones, you know, my God, what have I done? And Bones says what you always do, you know, what you had to do. You turn death into a fighting chance to live, and you see the Enterprise streaking through the sky, burning up in the atmosphere. One of the best scenes ever in Star Trek, and that decision seems to just really eat away at him over time. And not that much time has passed, of course, between that moment and what we see here, because what happens throughout the movie, you know, they are on Vulcan for a little while, but it it's a relatively short amount of time, right? All this stuff has happened to him. And if you go back to the beginning of Star Trek II, Kirk is struggling with the fact that he's aging and he's reflecting on the decisions that he's made in his life. And then suddenly he's torn out of that and he's sent on this grand adventure in which Spock dies and he has to get Spock back and then they have to save the Earth. And now suddenly he's got this moment to catch his breath again and you see that he's kind of reflecting on the same things, except there are a few additional things that have happened to him. Mm-hmm. Well, and and what's kind of nice about this framing advice too is that obviously it the, having Jillian there helps juxtapose the characters in the sense that they're both going through something kind of similar, which you know mm-hmm. Kirk's life for the last what twenty years has been on the Enterprise, the same ship, you know. Um, yes, it's been re- it was refit, but it, for him, it, it was home. It was it was everything. Um, it's where his family is, um, and the same thing with Jillian. You know, she's given up the entire world that she knew and has been brought to somewhere completely different, and now is having to figure out how to live in a whole different century. You know, so both of them are going through these major life changes. And so, again, I think what makes this comic really good is that the framing device actually really works. Um, And I think what I really like about this is that it does give some more depth to the relationship between Jillian and Kirk, and that it's not Mm -hmm. just a, you know, sexual relationship that they have. They really have this friendship because she does understand in many ways what he's going through in a way that many other people never would because of the experiences they've both been through and now where they find themselves. And so I think, you know, even just literarily, this is a wonderfully set up comic to then shoot us forward and and have all of these things begin to connect together, which is going to bring us back to the present for, you know, the, the conclusion. Right. Yeah, that's a great point comparing the experiences of each of them and getting to see a bit more of them together because on screen, we don't really learn anything else other than right. she goes off, she gets assigned to a ship and she has to figure out how to learn or how to live in the 23rd century. And then Kirk goes and climbs a rock. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, the thing that is kind of beautiful about this is that it is interesting to see there was this adventure right before Star Trek five. And, and I think, um, it, it actually plays out pretty well for the most part. Um, it, 
it doesn't make quite as much sense because the Enterprise seems to be in pretty tip top shape, you know, uh, so that, you know, right. when they get to the Enterprise in Star Trek five and everything's not working right, it's like, what's going on here? Um, but well, that's because there were still critters in the walls, Matthew. That's probably yeah. it. Little that's probably baby it. critters were in there yes. chewing on the yeah. cables. There and you things. go. Yeah. There you yeah. go. Um, so the the big part of this comic before it kind of truly transitions back to the present um, is uh, the flashbacks that we get. And the very first flashback that we get is back to Kirk's time before even the Enterprise uh, on the Farragut for his his first go on a constitution class starship and Mm -hmm. uh the farragut has been attacked and kirk finds himself in a place where he feels guilty for it. in fact the captain has been killed uh and he feels guilty for the fact that he didn't shoot first and then ask questions later and um they are trying to repair the ship because the warp drive's inoperable, of course, as always in Star Trek. And uh, the acting captain makes Kirk work with one of their passengers that happens to be an engineer as well, but she's Vulcan. And so Kirk's first time to really work with a Vulcan, and it turns out to be this woman named Tassel, who is going to be very important for the rest of the story. I thought the use of this particular moment as a flashback was interesting because it also establishes the time frame again. So we just talked about how the events that when Kirk leaves Julian on the boat and goes up to the Enterprise A, that's in between Star Trek IV and Star Trek V. And it's actually when the Enterprise A is just getting into a position to leave space dock and they're going to like move it over near the moon just to kind of keep it over there for a while. So that establishes strongly uh, the timeline. And then here, what's happening on the Farragut ties into the episode Obsession from the original series where the like draconium cloud is is sucking the red blood cells out of people. And if you remember that episode, Kirk tells Spock to check the tapes from the Farragut because this kind of thing happened before. But that's all we know about it. So here we learn, okay, well, Kirk was a lieutenant aboard the Farragut, and this puts the story 11 years before Obsession. So we actually know where this is very concretely on the timeline, where these events are happening, and plus we're, we're filling in gaps in the original series that we uh, didn't know about before. So I thought that the use of that setting of the Farragut was a nice choice to help really solidify everything. Yes. So this like these events in Kirk's life feel more real because it's not just something random. It's not a random mission. Yeah. It is a mission we didn't see before, but it is connected to something that we do know. And so that that was a nice touch. Yeah, you know, honestly, it kind of feels like the thing that, you know, Christopher L. Bennett likes to do in his novels where he likes to connect a lot of different things together to create a story, you know, from episodes you know. And so I think that's one of the things that, are, again, I really like about the comic is that it's doing this with these mm-hmm. different stories. And, and they're deep cuts, right? Like, we're this is not something that, um, you know, unless you are paying attention or you just know TOS inside and out, you might miss that, right? And so I think that's what makes this really cool as well is that it's 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 perfect for anybody who's just vaguely familiar with Star Trek, but it's also very rewarding then for those who are steeped in Star Trek lore. 
And I think that's what makes this really exciting. And of course, too, um, we have this interesting relationship forming with Kirk and his first time to really be working with a Vulcan. And they, in fact, I love they even kind of talk about how she was interested in meeting Spock, you know, and because she's mm-hmm. heard a lot about him because he's the first Vulcan in, in Starfleet. And so I found that really interesting. Um, and they create this really interesting working relationship. In fact, the acting captain even talks about um, how the work that Trissel and Kirk are doing together um, has been exemplary and they're working very well together. And Everything seems to be going okay, um, and that is until these very strange creatures uh, attack the Enterprise. And, I mean, it looks like the creature from the Black Lagoon showed up, basically, um, and or some space bugs. Maybe yeah, the space, space bugs. Yeah. Space lights. <laughs> So I'm picturing if these are space lice, I'm picturing that somewhere out there, there's some planet where the people are really huge, (laughs) giant heads to have these guys crawling around in their hair. I mean, I, I it it's crazy because they just kind of come out of nowhere. They attack the Farragut, and yeah. so the way in which they are going to uh, beat these alien creatures that i mean we don't ever get a name for them um is to get everybody they can to the saucer section and then separate the saucer uh mm-hmm. and that becomes kirk and Trissel's mission which is to separate the saucer so that they can save everybody regardless of whether or not they can save themselves so this also sets up a theme we're going to see here throughout kirk's life which is making tough decisions especially since he was told by marwood uh one of the officers to save themselves and then she gets sucked into this like weird i I don't know honey trap it looks very strange yeah i i would like to talk about the critters a little bit at some point and what they're doing how they infiltrate a federation space and and attack others and kind of how that storyline thread takes us through the book as well. Uh, we can do that later if you want, but I am curious about your thoughts on that because f- for me, it felt like an element that w- it's put in there to create a crisis that Kirk must deal with at various points throughout his life. And especially that keeps bringing Kirk and to sell back together. But it's not at all the core of the story for me. You know, the core of the story right, is right. Kirk's yep. life and what he's dealing with in terms of regrets over decisions that he's made mm-hmm. and the debt of honor, of course, of the title of mm-hmm. the book. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think we'll definitely have an opportunity to be able to talk about them a little bit more where they kind of reveal how they, you know, mm-hmm. are doing all of this. But suffice it to say, we have. Kirk and Tracel go on this mission to separate the saucer. They are able to do so, but at the expense of themselves. And they both really almost die in this mission. Mm-hmm. And Kirk is um, about to die. Um, mm-hmm. And it, there's this really interesting thing which happens is obviously it's not told exactly how long the Farragut 
has been in the position that they've been in, but you get the feeling like they've been kind of limping along for a while so that this relationship has been building with Tercel and Kirk. And so mm-hmm. when they find themselves on a escape pod, um, it creates uh, a, a moment for them um, to share some time together, apparently. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and, and that could be important later on. Uh, of course, mm-hmm. you know, we do see... We don't see Kirk making out with Tassel. We see Tassel kissing Kirk. She's formed a bond with him through this mission that carries through the story, carries through many, many years of their life, lives, uh, carries through uh, many, it feels like big changes in her life mm-hmm. over the years, even more so than in Kirk's life perhaps because Kirk is more in this structured environment of Starfleet, whereas she's more of a rogue on her own. She doesn't fit in with the Romulans, Mm -hmm. uh, with the fleet, you know, as a captain, as the way that some other Romulans might. She kind of has her own mindset, which I think stems a lot from the fact that, and I don't think we've actually stated this yet in our discussion, but she's half Romulan and half Vulcan. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, which is revealed along the way here. Uh, but before we get away from this part of the story on the Farragut, there's something she says which raised a completely different question in my mind, and I don't know if we want to talk about it right now, but it does connect a bit with how Kirk is seeing things as he reflects on his life. And to sell, she says to Kirk, it's on page 14, she says, while some consider it admirable to seek perfection in all aspects of being, the rude reality of existence is that we are all finite and fallible. And it made me think that we see young Kirk, here he's a lieutenant on the Farragut, and then we see Kirk later on when he's an admiral, then he's been demoted to captain, he's reflecting on, on his life. And I was thinking about the real world and how sort of this... um this idealism of youth that people have, especially say in their twenties, even in their thirties kind of gives way to realism and apathy as you age and as things happen to you. And as you uh, work your way through the realities of how the world works. And I started thinking a bit about Kirk and him reflecting on that and maybe thinking about things that he wanted to do uh, especially the way he felt about what happened on the Farragut. And then the the decisions that he had to make over the years as the captain that maybe went against uh, what he really wanted to do, but he had to do those because that's the nature of reality. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because I, I, I do think that's not a line that you would probably get much anymore, you know, to right. admit that we are flawed beings, you know, there, there's nothing perfect about us, you know, and, and uh, th- all of life really is about learning from all of the experiences we have and, and continuing then to strive to be a better person by learning from those. And that's really, I think, obviously, TOS was very much in that mold as well. You know, these were not perfect characters. They were ones who were being formed and shaped by the experiences uh, that they had. And I think that's what kind of made it so relatable to so many people. And I I think that speaks deliberately then to, you know, when Kirk gets back to the Federation because they're on a base uh, 
um, since they were near the Romulan neutral zone, uh, the Federation had these bases that they had set up. And um, Tressel and Kirk are able to make it there, and she puts him in stasis so that she can go and confront the Romulans uh, and so that they won't find Kirk, so he'll be able to make his way back. And, you know, she tells Mm, him, which is very interesting. She, you know, like you said, she kisses him. She says, live long and prosper and remember, which that feels very familiar. Mm -hmm. Um, And she, we don't see her again, but we do see Kirk at Starfleet Command. And he's talking to one of the admirals who, uh, and not just an admiral, but the chief of operations who tells him, you know, look, what happened was not your fault. And um, which is something that obviously Kirk was living with. But. We also learn that there isn't a record of the aliens that attacked the Farragut, and therefore nobody really believes Kirk about these aliens. And so Kirk kind of finds himself in a place where there's only one other person in the galaxy that he knows of, knows what's happened, and is worried that this might be something bigger than just a one-off attack. And so this kind of sets in motion something that's going to continue throughout the rest of the comic. And, um, yeah, it makes for, I think, again, these flashbacks are really interesting because they just keep building this as we move forward to see where these aliens keep showing up and why. And it helps explain then how and why these aliens are doing what they're doing when we finally get the explanation for that. I don't know if it was a satisfying explanation, but we at least do get some explanation as to why yeah. they are attacking. Yeah, I think probably the best thing to do is to talk about the next flashback, because even though we kind of move back to the present, that part mm-hmm. isn't quite as important as getting to the next flashback, which is where we find um, the next encounter with these aliens, which is going to be after the Doomsday Incident. Which right. is really fascinating, and um, it, it kind of gives us a taste as to, to what's going on. I mean, it seems to be quite these large interstellar incidents that's making this happen. And Kirk mm-hmm. um, and the crew, after they've faced off with the with the Doomsday device, they get a call, basically, <laughs> um, and it turns out that it is Tracel. Um, and, uh, I, um, with, a uh, two Romulan ships, you know, one kind of the classic and the other, you know, with the, the look of the, the Klingon, you know, warship. Romulan's so, now using Klingon design. I know it's, it's shocking. <laughs> so, um, and Kirk decides to take, uh, uh, some of the crew and beam aboard the Romulan ship. And what do we find? They're being attacked by these aliens. Right, right. Uh, before commenting on that, I will just say that the part that we're skipping over where they're back in San Francisco and, and in orbit with the Enterprise A, the one important part about that, though, is it's more of a setup for later. Mm-hmm. But the idea of debt of honor is that Kirk's crew from the Enterprise, they all want to help him. And they're all kind of going behind the back of Starfleet to prepare for the mission that they're going to go on. So it does show that loyalty that they have to Kirk and that feeling of debt that even they have to him, probably for saving their lives. 
right for so many years so there is that connection set up there well and and then in that chapter we meet uh Janie Finney who has been continually trying to live uh in a way to make up for the mistakes of her own father mm-hmm. and again so all of these characters that we're going to meet throughout the story many of them feel as though they have this debt of honor to pay off and so the whole right. thing is about them trying to find a in in some ways this book is about penance yeah yeah so using the doomsday machine this was also interesting because again it gives us a moment to reorient ourselves on the timeline again a major event with which we're familiar but we're not replaying the events of that episode we're we're seeing events that tie into that moment in some other way that we haven't seen before and yeah that idea that when some kind of major galactic or interstellar event happens a ship is sent to investigate and then these critters attack that one ship that's their mode of attack as we learn and I don't know if the Doomsday Machine's appearance is really such a big interstellar event. The problem I have with the explanation of how the critters are making the attacks is how do they know that these events are taking place? And then how do they get themselves there? If there's a single gateway near the Romulan neutral zone, which is the only point Mm -hmm. at which they can enter our galaxy, because they come from another galaxy, actually. Yeah, they. How so is all see, this happening? They're scanning the temporal timeline. I think. No, I'm just making this up. I have no. It idea. could be. I mean, yeah. that makes sense within Star Trek, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe Daniels was really a critter. Oh, ah, that's it. That's I, it. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yes, and then see, in one of those timelines, he had fallen through the universe and gotten captured by them, and then that's how they found out they could go to this other universe and try to conquer it. Yeah, it might be it. Might be it. Yeah. I love it. It totally works. <laughs> Another thing I I love about this section though is I talked at the beginning about how the artists get to play with the uniforms, and here we get the classic Romulan commander uniform, like we saw in the Enterprise instant, for example. Tassel is wearing the gray and crimson, and the black boots, and also the hair style. The way they draw her, I think really captures that original series Romulan look very well. No, I agree. And and I love that, um, you know, they get on the ship, they help defeat these aliens, and it turns out that Tressel is the captain of this ship. And I love that Kirk's like, you! And she's like, I'm flattered, you remember. He's like, I suspect you made sure somehow I'd never forget. And so uh, you you really do, again, have this connection between these, these two characters. Um, but this is where we, we kind of start to piece things together on the fact that it is these major celestial events that seem to be the catalyst for the alien incursions. And this is also where we learn uh, in a meeting between them that's uh, not as private as they might have liked, um, which is that she is 
half Romulan and half Vulcan. And of course, back in the day, who would have known that they looked like each other? And so when she was found on that station, they just thought that she was one of them. And right. um, she's been playing the role ever since. And in, and what she says is, you know, she's found her first best destiny, which is to be a captain, much like Kirk. And she's kind of a maverick as well. And before she leaves, uh, she gives him a data card so that until they meet again, they have a way to contact each other. And so, again, kind of creating this relationship together, um, which, it, you know, it, it's just kind of neat to see... Um, Kirk, like it's not just a physical relationship. Like there's a real respect that these two characters seem to have for each other. And I think it makes for a more fascinating star-crossed relationship as well. So, I mean, you do kind of get almost a Romeo and Juliet thing, you know, um, especially since, you know, she's a Romulan and he's from the Federation Mm -hmm. and their parents don't like each other. Well, and the fact that she gives him that card so they have a way to communicate is great contrast with Jillian mm-hmm. because she didn't give Kirk a card when they left the council chamber at the end of Star Trek IV. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here Tassel's a little bit more organized and, and forward-thinking, yes. I think. It's very true. It's very true. <laughs> Um, I do love, before we get to the next flashback, that we're stealing the Enterprise again. It's great. It's just fantastic. So apparently, you know, you just need to get a low jack for that thing or something because (laughs) like... I'm picturing picturing someone down like on Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco selling t-shirts that say like, USS Enterprise... Starfleet's most stolen ship. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. So the, the next uh, major interstellar incident that we're going to visit in a flashback is after the motion picture, which obviously this one makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And Kirk uh, and crew, when you know he tells uh, Sulu to indulge himself, um, they find their way to this basically Klingon boneyard. Um, you know, we've got these ships that have been destroyed in the wake of V'ger coming through, and it turns out there's a Klingon ship there that was not destroyed by V'ger. It very much looks like it was destroyed or taken over by something else, and who mm-hmm. should show up but Tracel at this point as well, and they board this Klingon ship, and there's a there's a big secret behind this ship, and they're quite lucky that most of it was destroyed. Yeah, and this was a moment where it helps a little bit with clarifying how the critters are uh, using these interstellar events as a moment of attack because in the motion picture, we see the Klingon ships that become enveloped by the V'ger cloud and they're essentially digitized, I guess is the best way to explain. Right? They vanish, but here finding a ship that has been destroyed by some other means helps to like clarify the difference between what's happening uh, with these events and the ships. Um, again, going back to the uniforms, we get to see something that we didn't get to see on screen, which is kind of cool. In addition to the motion picture uniforms here, we get to see what a Romulan commander uniform would have looked like during the motion picture. Yeah, hers is a slightly more elaborate than I think maybe that they would have had on screen. Um, you know, 
She's got some, it's a really nice look, honestly. It looks like it is straight out of the early 80s. Massive shoulder pads, so. <laughs> right. Which is funny because it's a great link to what we would get in, in TNG. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Well, and so we find out about this Klingon ship that it was actually uh, a, a, a a housed a weapon that basically could put a hole through a planet. It's a planet right. killer. Right. And and what's really fascinating here is to see Kirk and Tracel make the decision to not tell their governments about the discovery of this ship because they know if we either side learned about this that they would probably go to war with the Klingon Empire. And that's not what either of them want for either of their countries because right. the, the loss of life could be catastrophic. And I just thought this is this is a really interesting thing because, again, we keep seeing these places where Kirk is having to make these decisions. But it's also kind of interesting to see a Romulan be uh, willing to make those decisions as well for the same reasons. And so it really creates, I think, um, this section specifically, I think, creates a really nice bond between these characters in a way where we can really see that they think alike and they very much are alike. They're both mm -hmm. these mavericks and uh, they do things by their own rules but really for the best of all people involved, not just people on their side. The fact that yeah. Tracel would be thinking like this obviously shows that she cares about more than just, obviously, the Romulan people. Right, right. Well, and the fact that the Romulans might take that position, or a leader among the Romulans might take that position, it sort of highlights to me how the, like in the original series, we viewed the Klingons as representing the Russians, right? As the Soviet Union mm -hmm. and the Romulans as the Chinese. And then that flipped a lot. And by the time you get to the next generation, it's really the Romulans who more represent the Russians. And as a parallel to the real world, there are always these moments, these discoveries, these things that happen in the real world, which could lead to war. If, if, a government is too reactionary. But the reason we don't generally have these huge wars is because governments are less reactionary to those things. So if you take the Soviet Union or the Russian government now, or the American government, or even the Chinese government, you know, they're going to generally try to de-escalate something. So here, by them agreeing that we can't make the, the existence of this planet killer Klingon ship known because it could lead to war. I think that does show how in the real world a similar thing would happen. Like we 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 need to keep this under wraps so that we can defuse the situation, figure it out, so that there's not just a sudden flashpoint. Because right. you know, Kirk says here that yeah, the Federation probably would go to war with the Klingons as well, but maybe with a bit of hesitation. Whereas mm -hmm. Tassel says, you know, the Romulans would definitely go to war and would not relent right. until every last Klingon is destroyed. And that would not be good for the Romulan civilization either, because all their right. resources would be expended. Not just the loss of life, but material resources, financial mm -hmm. resources, everything would be expended on something that's fueled 
pretty much by passion, not by right intellect or the needs of the people. Well, and that's why their decision is then to take the schematics of this weapon that they found and they are going to give them to all three governments. And I love how, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Kirk puts it, presto, an instant balance of terror, <laughs> you know, but at <laughs> right. least there's a balance. And the what we really learn here, though, is that, that that's also missing, right? Like this, this is something that the aliens have as well. And Kirk believes the aliens will be back. And then I love the end of this section because he asked herself, you know, come with us. There's no reason for you to go back. The Federation was once your home. And she's like, no, the the Phoenix is my home. And that's the name of her ship. Just as much as the Enterprise is yours. And if keeping her means I have to leave what I once held dear, so be it. And and she Mm -hmm. leaves. But she does tell him, you know, call me maybe or you know, call mm-hmm. me whenever uh, you need help, and I'll be there, especially mm-hmm. if it has to do with these aliens. And so this is where we flash back, and the present takes over. He's got a lot of song lyrics ready to go right there. He does. He does. So. <laughs> but that's sort of how Kirk is too, right? You know, Kirk stealing the Enterprise in Star Trek Three. It's like, if I have to leave everything behind, yep. I will, right? Yep. So this is another yep. example of how Kirk and Tassil are very much of the same mind. And mm-hmm. it is the reason why they can't leave each other's lives throughout all these yes. years. They keep coming back together. Kirk and Savick are waiting for the Enterprise to show up. And the Enterprise is right on time. And this is where Kirk learns um, because Kirk is not expecting the Enterprise. He doesn't want the Enterprise to right, be here. Right, He's thinking right. that they're doing this. And they are get, they've had another ship that's going to be showing up. And it, again, it turns out to be the Enterprise. And not only is it the Enterprise, but it's a bunch of familiar faces because Uhura and Commander Rand have made sure that they have stocked the Enterprise full of old friends like Riley and Bailey and Styles and Kyle and Carolyn Palamas, you know, like all <laughs> right. of these people that we know, but all people who want to help Jim Kirk in his time of need, which, right. you know, I know it's a little bit silly, but I think there's also a sense of of something that's really nice here, which, again, was what this comic is all about, this debt of honor. These people that we feel like we owe our lives to and we owe our allegiance to because of the things that they've been willing to do for us. And um, I think there's a real beauty to that. You know, it's not a transactional thing. You know, Kirk doesn't expect these people to be here because he did something for them. They just happen to be there because they want to be there because that's what they know Jim Kirk would do if the roles were reversed. And right. I think this is one of the things that, you know, makes Star Trek so special. And especially this this time period um, of the TOS is that it really is about people finding ways to be there for one another regardless of their differences, right? And isn't that something the world needs more of? Well, not only does he get greeted by all of these people who he's known from the past, he even gets a greeting passed along to him by Commander Baylock of the First Federation. So yes, truly, that was really fun. truly everybody <laughs> is there. But yeah, I mean, I think he would rather most of these people not be there because he knows how dangerous it is. And 
if they get killed due to him, that's yet another thing that's going to be weighing on him. Well, and I mean, and it's one of the things that's hard for him to take when he gets up to the Enterprise and Jamie Finney is sitting in the the command seat mm-hmm. because she was the senior officer there on uh, the Enterprise because everybody else was, you know, meeting Kirk. And right. so, um, yeah. And then, of course, we get hailing frequencies and we've got even more friends showing up. <laughs> exactly. It's and just like a friend's reunion. It's a friend's reunion. Yeah. I'll exactly. be there for you. <laughs> But it rem- I will say one of my first thoughts, though, was, is it really a good idea to have all of these people in this one spot? You know, it's that moment in Star Trek. It's like in Into Darkness, where they gather like all mm-hmm. the command yeah. in one yeah. room. Like, it's not the best idea. You know, it makes mm-hmm. for great storytelling in cinema. In reality, you would want to have these people in different locations, right? Yeah, what what makes this great though is that we finally get a piece of the story from the part where we were visiting after the motion picture where Core kind of lays out the reason why he's here mm-hmm. uh and it has to do with the way in which the difference between the Klingons they explain that here and why we see a power shift between those right and it's so good it's so good I think I was like very surprised to see that and I felt like it was you know obviously with next to Worf just saying we don't talk about it um this was a great explanation I think yeah you know that that point it keeps coming up and between on screen and in the lit verse, we've gotten so many explanations for why we have smooth-headed Klingons and why we have uh, ridged forehead Klingons. And they're often very interesting. You know, Enterprise tried to explain it as well through a way that made sense but was perhaps overly complicated. But here we have a, another explanation, as you say, to slot in during what we see in the motion picture. And of course, having core come back is also fine. And although we don't get a flashback, uh, like, like we got a flashback to something connected to obsession and we got a flashback to something connected to the doomsday machine. Here we get errand of mercy because we have core, but we don't actually go back to those events, but it's yet right another reference to relationships that Kirk built during his career as a Starfleet captain uh, that remain a thread running through his life, which Mm -hmm. is also an interesting idea because when you transplant that from, say, our own lives here on this little planet that we live on, when you transplant that to a galactic scale and yet you find that these people, these relationships keep coming back together anyway. Yeah, I think um, I I really like too that we learn that you know uh, the the ship that was attacked was from this part of the race of Klingons that Core is a part of, mm-hmm. and because of the loss of that, it has caused disgrace and it's gained. Uh, it's allowed the Klingons that we kind of know from then the motion picture onward to gain prominence. And that for him, obviously, getting this back is his debt of honor. And so all of them are together here 
to figure this out. And um, it, it's it's really interesting because at this point, this is where the rest of the story, again, we're here for the rest in the present where we're going to bring all of this together. And um, I kind of loved that um, really uh, the one of the coolest parts of this that I loved is a uh, little tiny Jamie Finney just kicking the <laughs> crap out of a Klingon and then becoming a part of the Klingon crew in the end. <laughs> right. Seeing her run around in the Klingon uniform is fun through the rest of the comic. Yeah. It's pretty hysterical. So I, the, the, the big thing, the, the big plan here is the fact that they know what just happened recently with the whale probe is the perfect time. It's the perfect type of interstellar incident to cause these aliens to arrive. And so the Enterprise and the Phoenix are going to basically kind of join together, cloak, be under the Phoenix's cloak, and they're going to use core ship as bait uh, so that they could finally find a way to stop these aliens from coming through once and for all. And in that, um, well, we eat an, we, we meet another interesting character, Chris, um, named Takur. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm pretty sure that uh, Kirk might have lost a son, but he's gained a daughter. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, the first time I saw her name, I didn't think about it like that. But as the story goes on, you start to think, and then you flash back to, as you mentioned earlier, after Tassil and Kirk did the saucer separation, they have some time together in the shuttle, and you start wondering, yeah, maybe. And then you think, okay, Tassil, time and again, tries to encourage Kirk to, for them to, to be together and to to realize their own best destinies, which is to be captains of ships and explore and work outside the framework of their respective organization. So she has this incredible fondness for Kirk and she named her daughter to Kerr. And then you think, okay, yeah, yeah, maybe this is Kirk's daughter. Once again, an offspring that Kirk doesn't know about. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's really interesting. And I think the fascinating thing about it to me is that it really does add a, a dimension that I would have loved to have seen followed up later on, um, you know, for, for Kirk having this daughter who, you know, like her mother, who never felt comfortable with the Vulcan half of her, mm-hmm. uh, found her comfort level. This is a daughter who has never found comfort in the Vulc- the Romulan half of her but she has always wanted to explore more of her human side. And so now she will get an opportunity to do that through the end of this comic. And I I think that would have been something fascinating to kind of see Kirk, especially, you know, we're going to have these events and, you know, I think it's kind of thought in, in Star Trek that he, they go on another five year mission possibly after with the Mm -hmm. enterprise a, and then, the events right. of, of, you know, uh, Star Trek six happen, but man, wouldn't it be interesting? And, and this is, this is where I think Star Trek books should go. Give us this story, basically give us that story, you know? And so, 
Um, well, the story, it's set up here in the comic because yes, yes. there is the moment where Kirk, you know, tells her that it would be his honor to help her, you know, find herself, to help yes. her find herself. Yeah, he says, it will be my pride and it will be my pride and privilege to help you learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, we could kind of like talk through in detail, but I don't think it needs to be talked into a, like a ton of detail. Um, mm-hmm. But what did you think of the wrap up here of this comic of everything that happens? Because we get um, the aliens attacking. We get um you know, uh, the Kirk, uh, beaming over to the Klingon ship to help them. They end up beating the aliens back. They end up finding out where these aliens are from, um, through, Mm -hmm. um, a, a, a face that we saw at the beginning. Um, we, uh, we saw, uh, the, the officer from the Farragut Marwood back and Mm -hmm. she, it's been turned into one of these aliens and it's like, you've got to destroy us right? or everybody's going to die. So what did you think of how this all ends up wrapping up? Well, in terms of the critters and all, this storyline of the critters infiltrating our space and threatening the future of our civilizations is necessary as an impetus for the story to bring together Kirk and to sell and core and to put the Enterprise A on this grand mission. And it creates all the moments through which Kirk can reflect on his life and try to find himself again. So in that respect, I think it worked well. I I don't feel like it makes a whole lot of sense personally, but that's the case with uh, many of these types of storylines in Star Trek where, you know, the, the, the future of all life is at stake. You know, it's like a recurring theme of Star Trek Discovery. Right. Every season, the galaxy is going to end. Even season one of Picard is like that as well. So that's just something that they do. What I found more interesting about the overall resolution of the comic, though, is once we get back on Earth, Kirk goes back to the boat. He's with Julian again. And we get a couple of nice payoffs here. One is that we get to see a whale being born for the first time in over 300 years. And that was a nice resolution to their mission in Star Trek IV to bring the whales to the future. And now we see that, okay, George and Gracie came to the future and they are able to have an offspring. Yes. Which was sort of the point of that. So that was nice. And then the other thing I think that, you know, on the final page, we see Kirk and Julian toasting to new life. And Kirk says, and perhaps a new civilization. But then on the last page, he says, and to the friends I found along the way who've enriched my life and made the journeys past and those yet to come well worth the making. And it's the journeys yet to come part that I really like, because if you go all the way back to the beginning of Star Trek II, and you see how down Kirk is about his future, and he feels he's getting old, and he feels like he's his career's kind of dried up and he's going to be stuck behind this desk. And then even at the beginning of this comic, he's still, you know, he's really struggling with things that have happened. But now I feel like he sees a bright future. Yes. And that he's worked through those problems through this story. And maybe Julian's even a part of that future for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the final two frames says the end and the beginning. 
So I think they wrapped up the comic really well. And I think they did a good job throughout telling the story they mm -hmm. wanted to tell and making the point they wanted to make. Yeah, I, to me, too, one of the things that really happens, and and like you said, there's these overarching big things happening, but really I think it does come down. The, the beauty of this is it's more about the character stories that are happening and yeah. everyone kind of finding a way to pay off their debt of honor, come to an understanding of who they are better through that journey. And then as well as we really find out, you know, the thing that I think makes the, the relationship between Kirk and Tercel really special is that they do truly understand one another. You know, she asks yeah. him to come with her when all of this is over, that they could explore the galaxy together. And yet she knows that Kirk is not going to be able to say yes to that because she also understands the love he has for being on the bridge of the Enterprise. And what I really appreciate about that is that they truly love each other and they accept each other for who they are and don't ask for them to, to be different than that, which I think is really special. And, you know, for her, you know, she sacrifices her life and ends up going on the other side of this major rift that happens. And, and she's going to be exploring a, a whole new galaxy. And, and you know, hopefully, you know, who knows, their paths might cross again one day. You never know. Um, but I really just liked that because it really was so much more about understanding, like, and, and, and truly understanding somebody and and not trying to make them somebody you want them to be but just accepting them for who they are and i think again that's also kind of a, a star trek message right and um you you get that as well in the relationship that kirk now has with this daughter that he uh, has just found out he has and the fact that she's going to want to be exploring who something that she hasn't been able to explore which is her humanity and um and then, like you said, too, we end on that relationship between him and Jillian, which gives a lot more depth, again, to all of that than anything we ever got in, in the film because they just didn't have time for that. And so I, I really like this comic. I think, you know, um, regardless of how I feel about the overarching story of the aliens coming through, it's just a vehicle for them to really tell a character-driven right. story and yeah, to exactly. get to the emotion of – and that's what I kind of like. It's it's really meant to drive us to the emotion of what's going on on the inside of these characters. Uh, and, and again, that's Star Trek, right, is we tell these overarching stories to help to get to the human condition and explain that to us. And, and so I could care less about whether or not all of that works. The rest of this comic works for me, gangbusters, so – I guess in the end, it makes me wonder, Chris, you know, what would you rate Dead of Honor? Oh, well, um, I I would have to give this comic nine out of ten baby whales. Nice. Excellent. And how about you? Uh, you know, I think that I'm going to have to give this, uh, I would also give this nine out of ten, but I'm going to give it uh, Romulan Commander uniforms from the motion picture era. So, uh, okay. because, they're <laughs> yeah, they're that good. Specifically um, that one. You exactly. know, I also realized, Matthew, just now that this comic was published in 1992. And so Tassel, she was really ahead of her time because by heading off to that other galaxy where the critters are from, 
If this were today, Paramount Plus, I mean, she just wrote herself into a spinoff series. She really did. See, and that's what I'm saying. Like, you could write an entire... And this is this is one of the things I, you know, I would love to see Star Trek books do since they're now going to be kind of mining more of these eras. This is an era I think you could mine, maybe use this story a little bit as a catalyst and like have Kirk have his daughter on the ship, have, you know, um, the ability for uh, Kirk to also maybe run into Tracell again on that five-year mission, you know, with the Enterprise A. Heck, that would be fascinating. So there's so many storytelling opportunities here still, even in this era, that we've never gotten to explore. So forget the five-year mission era. Give us the movie era. I think that's the way to go. So, yeah. Well, super fun that we we got a chance to talk about this, Chris. And we do want to say, uh, of course, a huge thank you to our associate producers here through Patreon, uh, Greg Rosier and Casey Petit. We really appreciate them supporting the network uh, and Literary Treks to make sure that the shows keep coming to you each and every week. And Everyone knows, I think, but we do want to mention we could definitely use your support. It's a very expensive enterprise to put this on each and every week for all the shows that we have. Um, we're continuing to reform at the network. and We've got some great things coming up for you this year. We're excited uh, for that. So please go over to patreon.com slash trek.fm and see how you could be part of our team in the end. Every little bit helps, uh, but we do have some cool contribution levels you can give at as well. So, uh, Chris, where else can they find us online? Well, if you'd like to share your thoughts on the story, if you've read this comic or you read it after this and want to talk to us about it, you can find us on Twitter. Our username there as a network is Trek FM. You can also go to Facebook where we have our listeners group called the Babel Conference. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook and it should come up. But if it doesn't, just type the Babel Conference. That is a closed group. So if you're not yet a member, you'll need to request to join and you'll need to answer the questions that are there so that we know you're a listener. But that's a great place to talk to us and other listeners about the stories. And if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. That's where I'm most active, although that is my username elsewhere in social media. And if you want to drop Matthew and me a line by good old traditional email, you can do that by going to the website trek.fm slash contact and use the form there and choose Literary Treks as the show. And that'll come to both of us. Now, Matthew, when you're not, you know, sewing your Romulan commander uniform for your cosplay once in-person conventions are a thing again, where can people find you? Well, uh, you could find me all over the place, uh, MattRushing02 on any social media platform that I'm on. Just search for that. Of course, here on the network, I'm also doing the 602 Club, where we're talking about all of the fandoms we love. So make sure you check that out. Of course, there we've got our other show in that feed called Snyder Cuts, where John Mills and I have been talking through everything Zack Snyder's directed as we got to his Justice League. And we've got some other shows coming up in that as well for you. Uh, of course, doing... The Orb with you, Chris, you know, uh, about Deep Space Nine, as you mentioned. And then um, over on the Nerd Party Network, Drea Kaufman and I, we are wrapping up the Harry Potter series. We've been doing that one chapter at a time on Owl Posts, so you can check that out. It's a perfect listen. If you just started the series, if you've already read the series, 
check it out. And then, of course, doing aggressive negotiations there with John Mills uh, each and every week as well as we talk about Star Wars. I should also mention, I didn't mention any podcasts a moment ago, but Larry Nemechek and I do have a new episode of The Ready Room out where we're finally looking back at Star Trek Discovery Season 3. If you're interested in that, you can catch us over there. And as Matthew mentioned, we've got some orbs coming up and have a few other things uh, in the hopper as well. Well, Matthew, it was really fun, you know, swimming with the kitties with you today with Julian there, uh, George and Gracie, and also shooting some bugs. But I'm looking forward to next time on Literary Treks when we jump into a different story. Well, Chris, that sounds like a lot of fun. We do want to say thank you to everyone for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.